Welcome to the Next Chapter Experience podcast with Jeanette Lissette. Thought leaders explore the mindset, wellness, and wealth needed to realize next level transformation. Let's get started. Welcome to the Next Chapter Experience. I'm your host, Jeanette Blissett, and today's guest is Chris Miles, and Chris is known as the cash flow expert and the anti-financial advisor. Chris started down the financial advisor path, but he realized that in a very short order that his clients had no chance of actually achieving financial freedom by investing in 401ks and typical mutual funds. So he left the industry and he became a passive real estate investor and was able to retire when he was 28 years old. I don't know how old you are now, Chris, but I'm sure that was a few years ago. And since then, Chris has basically taken the time to teach others how to do the same thing that he did, what we call work optional, where you have enough passive income to work by choice. He also is the host of Money Ripples podcast. Chris, welcome to the Next Chapter Experience. Hey, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Janet. So in this chapter of your life and the experiences that you're having, if you were to take the full body of the work that you do and had to summarize the mission that you're on and why it matters, what would that sound like? Or how would you do that? I really feel called to do what I'm doing, right? I really feel it is a mission and a purpose. Even the name Money Ripples, just that alone was because I want to create a ripple effect through people's lives. I've seen it be true is that the more that you're free, the more resource that you have to be able to serve others, the more you can serve. In fact, it's so nice to get to a place where I'm not in survival, where I don't worry about whether I can pay the bills or not, right? Where that's a common thing. And I've been there. Trust me, I've been more broke than most people, but still to get to a place where I don't worry about whether I can pay the bills. It allows me to have an outer focus and focus on helping serve other people. And that's the ripple effect I want to create for others as well is to liberate someone, to free you so that you have the choice to pursue your passions, to spend more time with your family or your loved ones, to do the things that really lights the world up and makes it a better place versus those that are just surviving, right? They're just trying to make it day to day. And all they're worried about is themselves and taking care of their own family's needs. And that's fine, but- it can be so much better. And that's where I want to take it. How can I constantly keep taking it to that next level to help teach and inspire and bring hope to people that maybe felt hopeless? To your point about being in dire straits, can you take us a little bit through your journey of how it all started and how you came to the conclusion that this is not it, but this is probably where I want to go? When I was raised by my family, they taught me good values, right? They taught me things about work hard, follow your passions and your dreams, your word is your bond, have integrity and things like that. But I know when it came to money, it was always a scarce subject. It was always about how we don't have enough. We can't afford this. What do you think? Money grows on trees. I'm not made of money. You know, those kind of things were always taught to me growing up. And it instilled in me even as to an adult, but I didn't want to be that way. And so that's why when I was going to college, I thought maybe college would be the answer. But then I realized if I become a W-2 employee, that's probably not going to have a whole lot of freedom either. Then I'm going to be dictated about how much I earn when I can take time on or off. I didn't want to have to live that kind of life. So I became an entrepreneur. And the first business that I found was being a financial advisor. I didn't realize it was that easy to become a financial advisor where they take anybody off the street that you don't even have to have an economics degree. And even if you did, it doesn't mean anything either. But you didn't have to have any real background. You just had to be able to not be a criminal and not have a criminal history and pass a test. And that's it. It's almost like becoming a realtor. So I started doing that. After several years, I remember sitting down with my father. Now, my father was the product of the depression because he was always about, hey, you save everything, be cheap. And he was cheap, trust me. Save everything you can. Like, I remember the first time I used an overdraft. I thought I was going to go to prison because I didn't have the money. What, what am I going to do? And they're like, oh, it's an overdraft. You just pay it back whenever you can. 
Really? You could do that? I, I didn't even know that was a possibility. Long story short, I, I'm sitting down with my dad after several years. He wanted to know how he could retire. He said, I'm 61 years old. I want to stop working. I'm done. I've had heart attacks. I've had strokes. Get me out of here. I looked at all of his numbers. And even though he stuffed all that money in his 401k, got the match, all the Y2K wasn't friendly to him just a few years prior. Then of course he paid off his house. He was totally debt-free. I told him, I said, dad, listen, if you pretty much are spending maybe even just 50,000 a year, you're going to run out of money in about five years. So you better hope you die by then. Okay. That's not what I want to hear. Give me an answer. I said, I don't have one because I could try to get you in this market thing or that market thing. But what if that fails? What if there's another recession, which there was a few years later? So of course it was a good thing. I didn't put them in those things, but it just hit him at the wrong time. It just really hit him hard. So as a result, my faith was shaken in what I was doing as a financial advisor, because if this guy who's dirt cheap trying to save every penny he had and still it wasn't enough, what does it say about the rest of my clients? And, and that got pointed out by a friend of mine who left being a financial advisor on my team and then went to go do real estate investing. And he's telling me how much money he and his dad are making. And it, bl it blew my mind. I didn't think it was even possible. I thought it was too good to be true. But he asked me key questions. He said, Chris, how many of your clients are truly financially free where they don't worry about running out of money? I said, they all have a basic fear of running out of money. And it's, it doesn't help that we've had market crashes and such. How about this? How many of you guys as financial advisors are financially free, not if the commission's earning, but actually doing these investments? When I realized that a lot of those guys couldn't even retire either, and even since the late 1970s, I, I realized we've got a problem here. I'm teaching something that hasn't been proven to really work. There's a very low success rate. That's what got me out of it. It got me to look at something different, look at alternative investments and Stop trying to accumulate this nest egg. Instead, get your nest egg to start really kicking off a lot of income, more income than what you would just trying to not run out of money so fast, especially with inflation and everything fighting you. And that was the big epiphany to me because I remember, in fact, it was such an epiphany that later that next year, 2006, I actually did become financially independent where I didn't have to keep working. I was work optional. And I never thought that was possible because I was thinking if I could scrimp and save and be cheap, eventually by the time I was 40, which would have been about the late 2010s, then finally, maybe I'll be able to live on 5,000 a month from my investments. I thought if I could do that in less than 20 years, what a miracle that would be. No, I didn't need to do that. It was actually doing it better, being more efficient, especially when the stock market, uh, once you feel like you're getting ahead, then all of a sudden it knocks you right back on your butt. And that's not the kind of life that I think most people want to live. Appreciate that. I think that I probably fall in that category, get the company match. And in addition to that, I can do these other investments in mutual funds. That's the thought process that I had. So the question I have for you is, is there a difference between the people who are at the beginning stages of their career in terms of what they can do to get started versus those who are in their careers that actually have 401ks that may or may not be doing what they should be doing, what would be the differences or the advice that you would give to both groups, if you will? There's pros and cons to both situations. If you're just starting out, that means you could start out doing something different and do it better. If at the same time, you're probably just starting out and you don't have a lot to work with, especially financially speaking. On the flip side, if you're more established in your career, you've been down that line a little while, the good news is you might actually have some money that could be working harder for you to get you financially independent in the next five or 10 years. So let me go to the younger generation, right? The younger millennials and Zoomers, they actually are overly confident. They think that in the near term, life isn't going to be so good for them. Like it's expensive, things are hard to make it, but they feel like their future is much brighter. And they even did a survey that said that they expect they only need $500,000 to live in retirement, <laughs> which even if you use, I would call it the neo financial advisor teachings, because there's still people teaching the old myths of the 4% rule that you can live on 4% of your money, which was taken from 1976. 
numbers, looking at the previous 50 years. Since then, inflation is higher because they got taken off the gold standard just before that time happened. And the markets aren't returning that well. So you kind of have this double whammy going against you where now they're saying at most only pull out 3%. If you have $500,000, you live on 3% a year, not even factoring in inflation, that's only, do the math, that's only $15,000 a year. And after inflation in 40 years, I guarantee that's going to be worth more like a couple thousand a year in your mind. And that's what happened with one of my older clients too. I'll talk about it in a second. Your best thing is, yes, if you get a home, great, get a home, but don't rush to pay off that mortgage. Don't do something that's ridiculous where you put your money in prison because if we do hit hard times and we always do, and that's the problem. The younger generation hasn't really seen a hard time yet. 2020 doesn't count. 2020 was such a blink of an eye compared to when we see recessions like we've seen where we had the great recession recession. We had Y2K. We had the 90s recessions, right? We had the 87 debacle with all the bond markets failing and stuff like that. We've had some pretty harsh recessions that have happened all throughout history. And they usually happen at least about every seven to 10 years. So I, I would say this is you want to be prepared. You want to be liquid. You want to have money in savings, not locked up in a 401k where you can't get to it and not locked up in home equity, where again, you can't get to it. I made that mistake in the last recession. A big lesson for me where I had money locked up in home equity, and then I couldn't get it back out because banks wouldn't give it to me because they never give you the money when you need it, only when you want it. Let's stay there for a second because I, I remember you saying that in one of the podcast interviews that you were on, the best time to actually approach a bank is when you don't need the money. Yes, absolutely. If you ever watch Harry Potter, whether you read the book or the first Harry Potter book or the first movie, remember he's trying to get the Sorcerer's Stone and, the, and Voldemort, the, the villain, couldn't get it. But Harry could because he, he only wanted to get it for good or Voldemort wanted it for power. And that was the trick. Money's very similar and banks are very similar. If you get laid off, do you think a bank will want to give you money? Because they know you're going to just spend it and then it's gone. They don't want to invest in people that are risky. Believe it or not, the whole myth of high risk equals high returns is something that banks taught you to believe for yourself so that you take all the risks that they don't have to. But banks never like to take high risk. They know that high risk do not create high returns. That's why they don't want to give you money. So when you need the money, when you're in a place where you're money is tight. Even if, even if you didn't get laid off, even if you just got a pay decrease, or maybe your expenses went up, you started charging up credit cards. That's the time they'll never want to give you money. They only want to give you money when you're feeling comfortable and confident, right? When you're in a good place. So if you're going to try to get money from a bank, do it before you ever need it. Get it when you don't even have a reason to get it. A lot of times that's usually the best time to be able to have access to money. So let's talk about that group of people like me who had a 401k, and have mutual funds. What else can we be doing to make our money either work harder for us or work for us in a different way? So much more. One thing I've mentioned to people is that the last 30 years, this, the S&P 500 has only averaged 7.73% as the actual average yield of the S&P. But most mutual funds never do that. And if you have a 401k, they do even worse. The target date retirement funds that most millennials and Zoomers are using right now, those target date retirement funds are underperforming the market by 2%. On top of that, they have a three quarter percent fee. So you do the math, say 2.75 taken away from 7.73. That means you're lucky to get 5%. Even with the match, which isn't a hundred percent return only initially, but once you start building that cash, that diminishes really in the in long term, your match might, even if it's hundred percent match may only add about one to 3% return, depending on how much you're funding. If you max fund, it's more like a 1% return. So in that sense, for those of you that have been saving and been sacrificing, you're like one of my clients, Dan, where he actually timed the market. He did good with his mutual funds. He happened to move his money away from the stock market in Y2K, put it back in when it was at a low, moved his money out right before the right recession, and then put it back in when it hit a low. And uh, he was fortunate enough to get up to a million dollars. Now that million dollars, when he went to the financial advisor says 3% a year, you got to live on 30,000 a year. 
He said, that's unacceptable. Why am I a millionaire? I have to live on 30,000 a year. So when he came to us, he said, what else could I do? So to answer your question, here's what he did. Although there's more options than just this. And we'll talk about that. So he, he realized that there's a lot of different things you could do. One, you could have rentals. So everything we like to do is backed by real assets. Real estate is, is one of the safer assets you can go to in any economy or market condition. The first thing he did, he ended up buying a couple duplexes, but he does not manage it. He's the owner, but he's not the property manager, if that makes sense. So he's not dealing with the tenants, the toilets, and the trash. He's literally collecting the checks and the property manager deals with all the headaches. That's one thing that I think a lot of people make a mistake when they think, oh, I'll just go buy a real estate property and then I'm a real estate investor. No, I, my first experience buying real estate was actually being my own property manager and it was horrible. I was a horrible landlord, not in the sense I didn't treat him right, but in the sense that I didn't put my foot down hard enough because I would buy any sob story, let them not pay rent. Uh, getting a property manager was saving grace for me. I had Dan do the same thing. Got a couple of duplexes, paying him money, but he didn't want just real estate properties because they can create some headaches from time to time. Even if you have a property manager, he also put some money into equity to buy into apartment buildings because you can pool your money with other investors to be able to take down bigger projects like a big apartment complexes or self-storage units, or even like oil and gas, which he also did that too. We had an apartment building that he had ownership in. He also did some oil and gas investments. At the end of it, after everything was deployed, and he actually had it in a 401k, but he put it into what's called a self-directed IRA so that he can invest it wherever he wants. So he did that. And now his million dollars now creates not 30,000 a year, but 130,000 a year without touching the principal, right? So his money's still there. The golden goose is still fat, but now it's just laying much bigger and in a lot of ways, safer golden eggs. That's the key difference is that if you have money, even if you just make say a 10% return on that money, you do the math. It's pretty amazing. So if you have that half million, no, you're not going to be living on 15,000 a year and then you get taxed on it. Instead, you're going to have that 500,000 making 50,000 a year. And the thing that shocks people is that it does bring hope. Like we mentioned earlier, is that it actually gives people more hope, realizing that they could actually do more than what they thought was possible. And that's the real key of getting your money to work harder. Other things you can do besides that. Right now, I think one of the better investments is lending money to other investors. So again, let them do the work. So you're passive. Again, I actually like passive to be really passive, not active. You probably get people on here saying, I have a whole real estate business and they call it passive income, but it's just another business. It's like having a job. Let's talk about for a second because you make a differentiation yeah. between the passive and residual. Good point. Because residual, I do put in a different category too. So I, I look at three types of income. There's active income, which is the money you work for, like a job or even a business where you're doing the work. That's active income. Residual income, I've put that in the category for business owners only or business type of related investments where, yes, you might have put a lot of work up front, but then eventually it starts paying you even if you're not working. So it has an eventual almost passive income-esque. Oh, even network marketing, I would look at it as somewhere between active and residual income because you still have to manage it. You still have to make things work, but there is some residual income there. On, on passive income, really it's passive. Somebody else does the work. You just get your money to make money. So it doesn't mean that you don't do due diligence. That's the one thing that my clients have to learn to do is how to ask the right questions. We try to make it easier for them because we have a whole network of about 20 plus investors and operators that they can put money with and then let them do the work. But even then they still got to do their due diligence, make sure that they feel comfortable in those investments and know what they're getting into. But once they're in, just like with Dan there, where he had money in an apartment building, he does nothing with the operations of it. He literally just put money in and he gets paid quarterly when they have profits. Lending is a way where you can lend your money to somebody. They contractually have to pay you a certain interest rate, just like you would pay the bank, but you're the bank instead of them paying the bank. I think right now it's great because there's opportunity because banks are charging so much more. So now investors are saying, 
Banks are hard because they already make you jump through all these hoops and paperwork, and it takes time to get through it when speed is of the essence. Speed equals more profit for an investor, right? Especially when they're active investors. So if I can lend them money at 10, 12, even 15%, like I just did on one deal recently, great. I get paid on that. They pay me back that interest and along with my principal. Could be short-term. I did a 15% loan. The loan was only out for three months and that was it. So really I got paid like just under 4%, but still making almost 4% in three months is a pretty dang good return. Same thing. It could be longer term. It could be somewhere they'll pay you just 10% or 12 and they'll just pay you that consistently, whether they pay you based on quarterly payments or monthly payments and you get paid on that. Your money literally is just being used to be able to make more money. So there's, there's debt funds. There's I said equity plays where if you could put money into an apartment building, Yes, you get paid a certain contractual minimum return of 7 8%, but they might also let you share in the growth too, which could be over time, could be 10 15 20%. Mm -hmm. Other things like I mentioned oil and gas, one thing that's really nice is not like speculative oil and gas where you're hoping they strike it rich when they drill. This is the kind of oil and gas where they already struck it rich. You buy the land, lease it to the oil companies because believe it or not, oil companies actually do not want to own land. They just want to drill. They just want to do their business, pay you rent, and then they'll even give you a cut of the royalties too, of all the drilling and the production they do. And that ain't not just the oil, but even the, the more cleaner, greener natural gas that comes off of it. So you can get paid off of any minerals that they are able to create and sell as a way of getting paid twice. And that can vary in, in, in degrees too. And then the one I, I would say it's helping me the most is you can also do partnerships where it could be a partnership where maybe you're investing in a car wash business with other investors, right? And then you get... They might have the real estate that's in there. Plus you have the car wash business. We can make profits from that too. I, I like to have real assets that pay real good, predictable, solid income. I was going to ask you about the due diligence factor involved because all of what you're saying is interesting. And if I'm the average consumer, I'm thinking how much of the due diligence is on me? How qualified mm. are these investments? And then we mentioned alternative investments. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the qualification to actually participate in an alternative investments. And that will give our listening audience an idea of where they might fit in with it. Like I said, it's easier sometimes if somebody's done it for you a little bit more, but if you're doing it on your own, the first thing I look for is track record. Has this person been around the block? I actually don't mind if they said they had bad losses in the last recession, because the key thing is they were in the last recession. And if they learned from that, that just made them better investors later, right? If someone tells me I've been investing since 2018 or 2019 and made great money in real estate, guess what? Everybody's dog made good money in real estate in 2018, 2019. That doesn't mean anything. So I stay away from those people. I like people I've had usually probably about 15 years plus of experience in that specific investment, right? For example, I know somebody that, that normally does apartment syndications, but then he decided to dabble in a coffee farm or something like that. Not even in his zone of genius. Those people I will not put money with in those kind of deals aren't the, the boring deals. To me, boring is sexy. So I look for those people that have the boring deals that they've done day in and day out, year in and year out. And they just know it like the back of their hand. So that's, a, I think, number one key right there. Number two, even if they have experience, right? I ask them, what's the worst deal you ever had? What was the worst project ever that you had to deal with? If they've been around enough, they've had at least one bad project. So ask them, what was it? What happened? What happened to the investor's money? Did they lose it? Did, did you get it back? Because it's good to get an idea. I know one guy that's in our network. He's been around for over 20 years doing this. And, and he mentioned, he said, yeah, I'll be honest with you. 2007, I had a deal, went south. It was not good. Fortunately, is that we did enough, enough upfront work that we're able to get, sell it. 
We didn't pay them their interest, but they did get their money back. Even if it meant I had to come out of my own pocket. When I hear things like that, it's like integrity. I want that. So those kind of things. So what's like your bad experience that they had? What's the, give me the worst. And even with the deal, maybe they have a deal right now. What's the worst case scenario? What would happen if interest rates rose more? What would happen if all of a sudden, if it's like a, a building with a units, let's say it's an apartment building, what would happen if all of a sudden you had 20% vacancies? What would happen then? What would happen to your model? Would it break? Would it work? So how do you stress test that? I also like to look at reserves. Do they have extra cash sitting on the sidelines just in case? That's very important to be liquid and have cash. Otherwise, they're going to be asking you for more cash. And that's not always a good thing. Really, if you notice, I'm just asking the same questions that a bank would ask you when you get a mortgage. They want to know your credit history, right? So what's your track record? They want to know if you have cash reserves because you got to have cash reserves. Even if you have an 850 credit score, they will deny you if you don't have cash on hand or you don't have a good debt to income ratio. So those are the kind of things that I like to ask. But if you just stay with track record, how liquid are they? How low risk in the sense of do they, they stress test their deals to say if things go wrong? I'll tell you the biggest problem we've seen the last year or two has been those that had variable rate loans, right? They were literally banking that rates would just stay low forever. Then when they went up, they're saying, oh my goodness, like now I can't make any money. Now I need to get investors to pay us more money or this whole project is going to go under. You're hoping as an investor, you're not throwing good money after bad. For sure, for sure. So the thought that I have with all of that is, okay, mm -hmm. if the average consumer, say they're in, in position and they do have some discretionary income or discretionary mm -hmm. money that they'd like to place somewhere. How does the process work with how you work? Where would they find those investments that they can study and do due diligence on? How do they go about identifying those types of opportunities or even with your own company? Do it on their own. You could do what I did. Spend the last 15 plus years just really going and finding the right ones. Make sure that they're, again, like they're good, solid operators. But if you use our company, it's different. We connect you with operators that we've vetted already. Doesn't mean it's guaranteed. Doesn't mean that there's no risk because obviously there's always risk with investing. But it does get rid of some of the Google searching because I'll tell you some of the best operators you just can't find on Google. Point. They're just good at what they do, but they're not good marketers. Sometimes the best marketers I've noticed are the worst investment operators. Uh, I've seen some of them go on podcast after podcast. I never put them on mine because I see what their deals are. And I was like, I don't trust this guy. This guy's only been in the business five years. They're doing massively big projects. I can see this guy going broke and bankrupt and possibly getting sued his butt off by investors and stuff. So I'll stay away from those guys. But the ones that are nerdy, the ones that are just good, down-home, high-integrity people, those are the people I like. Those, and, and I usually only find them by joining like mastermind groups where there's other real estate investors like myself. That's one of the best places I've gone. So you could do the same thing, but you got to be careful because again, there's still, depending on the mastermind groups, there could be the charlatans that go in those too. So you have to, I tend to, I have a pretty good nose for those people because I'm, like I said, I'm one of those people, I'm not a flashy kind of guy and I, sure I do marketing, but I'm not that good of a flashy, like rainmaker type of person. Usually those people, I just don't find anything in common with them and they don't find anything in common with me. So we just never really gravitate in our spheres or our space. But when we do that for our clients, we try to help narrow it down. Uh, we even go a step further because usually we want our clients to have at least 150,000 so they can diversify a little bit. Although there's investments we have that literally have a minimum of a thousand bucks that you can get into, but 150,000 or more usually could do some pretty decent things. You can diversify a little bit, have some options. And we try to help you narrow it down because based on your situation, based on your preferences, maybe you want to just grow the money. You don't care about cash flow. Okay. There's different investments that are better for growth than for just paying you income. But if you're like, no, I want the income. All right. Stay away from these ones. Let's look at these ones. And then you can decide from there. We never, ever give investment advice, but we do try to help 
figure out where can you free up the money, get it out of prison. And then where can you actually get it out to work for you in the way that you want it to work? What are the kind of investments that might be the better fit? You have the ultimate power to decide which ones you really like out of those ones. That's the cool part. So the question that I have for you is as you're teaching your members, what are some of the things that you're doing to keep that education factor going so that they do become a little bit more educated on moving in certain directions based on their personal situations? I've definitely known a lot of those groups. The one thing I noticed with those groups that they always do is they just more open it up to the whole public. It's almost like a big buffet table and you just got to figure out what to eat and hopefully you don't choke. Where we try to work with people one-on-one to really customize it to them so that you feel comfortable with it. And you can bounce ideas off of somebody versus just, here's what it is. Not to mention the one thing I hate about sometimes in that industry is that they're getting paid off. So they're recommending it more because they get a back-end pay deal. You cannot trust those people because you don't know if they have their your best interest at heart. That's why I recommend people hire a company. It doesn't have to be ours, but something like ours where there is a consulting fee, there's that one-on-one attention that you're given. And then to keep the education going, one, to help you with your situation alone, and then after that, we just charge like a one-time upfront consulting fee. After six months, we just keep on a month-to-month retainer. You can get out any time. We're always doing monthly calls as a group. I'll tell you that continuing education is essential because there are companies that we connected clients with a couple of years ago that now you might hold off a bit. For example, turnkey real estate. Right now, it's hard to find turnkey real estate that pays you more than about six or 7%, what they call cash on cash return, right? Because the interest rates went up so high, it's hard to do that. But there's another company that we didn't recommend as much a couple of years ago because they didn't ever use mortgages. They would pay you about 10% a year without a mortgage, still good solid returns, but you buy the property outright. Now they're becoming a little bit better of an option, right? Because of what's happening. So as time moves and markets change, there's going to be better opportunities versus others that you can look at getting into. Even right now, like people are saying, what about self-storage? I'm like, hold on, give it six or 12 months. It'll be there. You're going to start to see more deals there than you're going to love. Once the the distressed properties start being sold, same thing with apartment buildings. For the most part, I'm telling people stay away from apartment buildings right now. Give it six or 12 months, there'll probably be a lot more opportunities for the great cash flow. I live in Phoenix. I'm telling you what, I get calls five or six times a week minimum from real estate agents who are wanting to buy my property. Driving around, I'm looking at all these developments that are going up, but I'm also looking at the apartment buildings or complexes that are being built. So Mm -hmm. it would appear that even though interest rates are high, people are still buying homes because they have to. They're building them and people are buying them. And then, of course, you have the apartment buildings and condos that are going up and people are still moving towards that direction. So there's a lot of activity that's going on all over the city. One question I did have for you, Chris, is do you only work with accredited investors? It could be non-accredited as well. In fact, some of the best deals that I'm in right now are non-accredited deals. Granted, like the oil syndication, that one says accredited investors only. Okay, great. That's fine. A rare occasion, you might see them have an exception to that depending on the deal. For the most part, it is. But there's a lot of opportunities that aren't. And so we'll even put those people that are not accredited, we might even put them in a separate group to say, here, we'll make it easier for you. Rather than getting distracted by all these shiny objects, here are the ones that fit your profile, what what you can actually do anyways. And there's still great options. Like when I mentioned that one that does the lending has like over 50% equity in the properties, they pay 1% a month on their money. They're for non-accredited investors. That's what I'm saying. Like even there, and even all the properties you can buy, and even that business venture I mentioned with the land, raw land, 
not accredited because it's a business venture, right? So there's still plenty of opportunities, which is good. But if you're accredited, it's wide open. Sometimes more is it's not always the best because you have so many choices, you can't make a decision about them. It's all very interesting. One of the things that you talked about in one of your podcasts was the difference between net worth. What is mm. the value of net worth? I thought that was curious your perspective on that. So you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah. I, I titled it that net worth is worth less. And I put less in capital letters. So people knew it's not that it's worthless. It's just worth less than what I value, which is the passive income side. Because what I find a lot of our key clients are like the Dave Ramsey poster children, right? The ones that they paid off their debt, they built, they saved all this money in their 401ks, their mutual funds. Like they, they did everything they were supposed to do. And then they realize at best, I'm going to be living on a budget. Like even in retirement. And sometimes they can't turn it off because they're told so long, you can't get out of that scarcity mode. You can't spend money that even when they get to retirement, they're still afraid to live life. And so that's where I told people, I was like, listen, I have, I've had people worth millions a net worth of millions of dollars, but their passive income is zero. So they still keep working because they are like, I can't quit. I'm even debt-free, but I can't quit because even though I don't have those debt payments, I still have to live. I still have to buy food. I still have to pay property taxes and insurance. I still got to pay for gas. I still got to pay for all kinds of things, utilities, which still have to go up higher than the market does sometimes. So we all have to pay these things. And so turning that net worth into passive income is what's really important, right? That's where freedom comes from. It's not from how big your net worth is. And by the way, nobody ever writes on their tombstone, I died with 2.7 million net worth. You know, and then they leave off the loving husband, father, or mother, or whatever it might be. Nobody cares about your net worth when you're dead because it's not yours anymore. So what do you do to actually get your money to create a lifestyle for you? Create that freedom so that you maybe be able to be that loving husband or wife, father or mother, whatever it might be, that you can actually leave a legacy behind you versus just saying, oh, I was cheap. And I pretty much lived in scarcity my entire life. Didn't try to visit family as often as I could because that would cost money. I tried to make them come to me instead. It's just not a kind of life that I want to live. Many people don't. The sign behind you says, live your life now, not tomorrow. And I can appreciate yeah. that. So as we kind of wrap things up, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs on this podcast, entrepreneurs who are in their chapter of getting whatever they can get out of life. Mm. The common denominator for most of them is the ability to create passive income so they can live a life that they truly want to live beyond just the bare essentials. I know that you had a great focus on creating high passive income so that you can live the life and have joy and, and share with others while you are alive. That passive income piece seems to be the common denominator that I'm hearing over and over again in terms of how you can create that ripple and make a difference. Absolutely. That's the entrepreneur trap, right? As you get into business, hoping for more freedom, like I did, only to realize you just create a very well-paying job. Yeah. <laughs> and I have friends that are multi-millionaires, sometimes multi-decamillionaires, and they still feel like they're stuck in their business, right? Because they make great money. They can take the trips. So on Instagram and Facebook, their lives look amazing. But still, when they wake up every day, they're like, I got to still keep working. I got to keep slaving away. I'm not at the point where I can just walk away from this business. That's the difference, right? That's the difference of freedom. There's Good income people, which is great, but don't confuse good income with people that are good with money or that they're free. Good income gives you only so much, but the freedom comes when you had that passive income coming in where your work optional, you work because you want to, not because you have to. And I'll tell you, half our clients are business owners. And that's the common thing that they say is, man, I'm making good money, but I just want to be the place, even though I love my work, I just want to be the place that I can show up or not. 
Like I, I have the freedom to be able to take off a month if I want to take off a month. I want that freedom. That's something that very few business owners ever get to achieve in their lifetime. Understood. I know a lot of business owners who are doing well, but they can't stop working. Even mm-hmm. with employees, they still are consumed with the work and afraid, almost handcuffed to that business. But the passive income to me gives you a freedom to experience and do the things that bring you joy without the, the hardcore day in grind. It seems like mm-hmm. at the beginning, you can't cheat that grind to create passive income because I've heard this said said by the wealth twins, you can't create Mm -hmm. passive income without activation. You've got to do something to get it going is the philosophy. I think that's the part that is the biggest question for most people who are thinking about what else can I do in this next chapter? I want to do it differently, but what is it that I can do to create that passive income flow? Exactly. That's what I recommend. Create a business, especially a business that has systems and operations that allow you to be a little bit more free within your business. So then you're doing what you love inside of it, but then also create other streams of income outside of your business so that even if that business were to be shut down, think about 2020 and when we became non-essential businesses, that's a very real thing that could happen again. So if you can get to the point where you say, you know what, if they make me non-essential, I'm fine. And I've had clients that, that through so grateful they had income coming in that they didn't have to just jump back in with desperation and scarcity. They could jump in with two feet, very calm and collected and, and abundant minded versus scarcity minded. So many people were. Absolutely. We know that you cannot create passive income passively. You got to grind away at the beginning. So I appreciate where you're coming from. You've had the highs, you've had the lows, and now it seems like you're riding on the high and you're also spreading your knowledge and spreading the wealth of knowledge to others. We greatly appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate you having me here. Absolutely. I hope to see you again. All right. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Next Chapter Experience. If you have already subscribed, rated, and left a review, or shared this podcast with a friend, many, many thanks. For questions, comments, or feedback, reach out to me at Jeanette Wissett at nextchapterexperience.com. We'll be back with more conversations, so until then, keep that fire burning.